Alright then, very, very difficult one to start with. Can I just get you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about Stephen, basically? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, so I'm Stephen Wiseman. I uh, have lived in Nairn up here now for nearly 20 years with my wife and two kids now who are, who are absolutely Nairnians. Uh, they've never known anything else, been born and bred here. Uh, I moved up here originally as uh, a countryside manager with the National Trust for Scotland. Uh, I'm basically an old ranger, so I, I worked in, uh, in the outdoors all my days. Stephen was the very first person we interviewed on our fourth and final trip to the Highlands and Islands in October of 2022. His stories of working in and with the outdoors, taking advantage of the region's unique landscape to improve our mental health, would be one that we heard over and over as we travelled through Moray, Badenoch and Lochaber. Join me in this final episode as I try and get to the bottom of what makes these landscapes so well-loved. This is Spirit, discovering the Highlands and Islands. I think the Highlands, certainly for me, has always been a big draw in the sense of it was always this big, I'll use this word, iconic nature place where where you had eagle and wildcat, uh, you know, where the otter was in real in numbers and, and, and red squirrel abounded. It's the last, last bastion of red squirrel in the whole of the, the islands. Um, and it had that, that uh, remote, untouched feel, which is far from the truth. Has been touched for many years by humans in so many different ways that we're beginning to understand more of the, of that. But there's this cultural thing as well. There's this thing about uh, you know wild landscapes, people at the edge of of um, their ability to survive, making a living from it. St Kildans, you know, climbing cliffs and gathering seabirds, eggs, and so people pushing trying to feed their children when there's potato crop failures and then they're getting pushed off the land by by the, the, the rich landowners who wanted sheep more than them uh, and sent all around the world. So so the Highlands diaspora around the world is quite an amazing thing to think of too. So there's this massive cultural pull um, to, to a place that's wild but not quite free um, but still has that has that hope of of freedom and and uh, and space and a, an opportunity to to just breathe i think there's a lot of that but also that chance to maybe see very beautiful things uh, wild landscapes to the fore within all of that while stephen came to nairn and its surrounding landscapes 20 years ago a 15 minute drive away in the town of Forres is someone who's been there her whole life and whose family ties to it go back generations Hi, my name's Susan. I was born a long time ago in Forest. Um, my great-grandfather had established a business in Forest in 1881, which was, remained in the family until 1997 when my parents retired. It was an ironmongery business, so there's lots of tales <laughs> from long ago. As we chatted, I discovered that Susan has a particular affinity with an iconic local mountain range, the Cairngorms. Well, it's hard to describe, um, but the Cairngorms kind of get under your skin. And certainly, uh, I don't know if it's because, you know, I went up there hill walking every week, every year for a week for six years. But certainly, I, I just love the Cairngorms. Uh, say my grandfather walked the hills a lot 
for me, so I don't know. I don't know if it goes down to the genes or not. Uh, but the kind of remoteness of it all is really appeals to me. Um, and and they can be it can be a scary place. You know, the weather can change. I've seen me, my friend and I were up there once, uh, Mila Biachal, the Shepherd's Hill, and the mist came down and it's so disorientating. You don't know where you are and it's really hard not to panic. And it was pre-mobile phone days. And anyway, you can't really rely on mobile phones because you don't know when you're not going to get signal or whatever. But yes, yeah, so, so we climbed a lot of the Munros there in school. And of course, Ben McDewey is one of the more famous um, Munros in the Cairngorms. And there's long been a, a story that the what they call the Great Grey Man of Ben McDewey, that lots of walkers have reported this big grey shape seemingly following them, which you can imagine is pretty scary when you're at the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Um, however, uh, people have now tried to explain it away by saying it's it's a type of reflection. It's the way, I don't know if it's due with the rain or there's some kind of sheet moisture, whatever it is. It's a trick of the light, basically. Basically, it's your own shadow that you're seeing <laughs> reflected back at you, which is something, I mean, literally to be scared of your own shadow. <laughs> but yes, that's that's Ben McDewey and the great grey man of Ben McDewey. But who knows what's true? Bit of a nasty story, I think. However menacing the great grey man, Susan came back to her love of the Cairngorms when I asked her the inevitable question, what the spirit of the highlands and islands was. And I found the way she described them particularly beautiful. I think for me, it's almost like you can't tell where you stop and the hills begin. You almost just feel like you're part of it. And um, and the kind of whole history it's just time, isn't it? And it's, I can't really describe it, but it's just like you're just all wrapped up in it together. And um, I just feel the, the pool of it. I, I can't really describe, I can't describe it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and probably, you know, the hills, the Cairngorms, again, won't have changed dramatically for thousands of years. I mean, there might be some paths now, but didn't. But there would always have been paths with the drovers and all that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's almost just like you're suspended in time and it's and you're just part of it. I, I can't describe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the whole time, I mean, I, I think the whole concept of time is quite interesting. You know, the further you get away from Earth, the more distorted time becomes. And I think when you go to places like the Cairngorms, time doesn't really mean anything. Do you know what I mean? It's not just those born and bred locally who hold the landscapes that make up their home so dear. As an outsider myself, I could sit with you for literally hours and show you all the photos I took as we travelled around. Shots of rocky coastlines, mountaintops framed with an ethereal blanket of mist, locks as still as glass, and rainbows arcing across green, rolling meadows. Unsurprisingly, it's not just me though. Here's Vera. Who are you and where are we? (laughs) So, so uh, we are in the Fintor Nico village in Moray. Um, I, my name is Vera. I am a ceramic artist and have been here for 27 years. Fintor Nico village is an amazing place. As you'd imagine, nature and sustainability are very much the order of the day. I asked Vera what the best thing about having made her home there was. So I go swimming in the morning. You know, every morning, first thing I do is I walk 
my 15 minutes to the beach and I go swimming uh, years, year round. So it's getting cold. <laughs> and every morning and many more times beyond that, I just can't believe how beautiful this is. You know, the dunes, the sea, the sunrises, the sunsets, the skyline of the highlands in the, in the background. I just love it. And I can't get enough of it. It's just really quite amazing. And most, most recently, I thought maybe I've been shaped by the landscape more than I thought. You know, who knows? You know, I've always thought like, you know, this morning when I was swimming, there was a seal you know, and that seal used to come last summer. It came every morning until I felt like I'm actually the one sitting in the zoo and it coming, you know, it's, it's free. It can go anywhere and it comes to watch me rather than me watching it. So yeah, we might, I don't know. We are closer to nature than we think we are. Fairly certain of that. Here, certainly, you know, here the input the input is is immediate and yeah. I feel privileged. I feel lucky. I'm not from this country, but uh, you know, I feel totally home in Scotland and uh, feel welcome here. I feel welcome here by the land. So the very first thing that came to me is um, the sky and the air. There is a clarity here. There is a purity that is truly special. Um, the first time I landed here, I touched down Inverness Airport. The, the door opened. This was on an airport with the engine still running. And I had tears streaming by, down my face because I smelled the air and I felt like I tasted. And I feel this a lot. Like when I go walking, when I go up a hill, um, and this is beyond us humans, you know, there is, there is something pure that is probably like that we all still remember from, you know, or in our genes, hu human, humankind would remember that this, this is how it was. And it's still here in Scotland. It still is. You know, unpolluted rivers, uh, yeah, not so many humans. Yeah, nature, the nature's imprint is still stronger than humans' imprint. And I think that we recognize that when that happens as something directly affecting our well-being. And yeah, just the fact that you can still drink from, from burns in the, in the highlands, you know. Possibly not advisable, I don't know, with the deer and the, you know, but I do it. <laughs> I've never gone ill. Nature as directly affecting our well-being. It's something that I suspect Stephen in Nairn, who we heard from earlier, would heartily agree with. Basically, I've worked for charities all my days in the outdoors, and, and most of that's been about connecting people with nature for mutual benefit. Um, you know, the more people value and get out there and see the benefits in nature for themselves, then hopefully the better they'll be able to uh, understand the needs of everything else that we live with. Um, yeah, so 
I mean, never has there been a more important time than for people to be to understand what nature really means uh, to them. Uh, and for so long, uh, and it certainly brewed up through you know the Victorian times and all the rest. Very strong then. It was very much man's dominion over nature. It was you know we were above all that, and uh, there were humans, and then there were animals, uh, and so we'd set ourselves apart from nature. But um, but we are a part of nature. And we need to have that understanding of how important it is for us to to feel the wind through our hair, the sun in our face, get wet occasionally outside, just enjoy everything that's there. Um, because that actually ignites so much in us and, and makes us feel much more real and more connected with things. And a lot of the work we do now, we've got a wee charity called Nature for Health. And um, that, again, is very much about... M- connection for uh, you know mutual um, benefit and the the idea the health element health and well-being element for people where they've, they've forgotten about going outside you know they're the very uh, uh, you know post-industrial urban focus where you know well we've got all this under control ah, training yeah well let's build walkways let's do this let's let's avoid nature in all the wee bits that make us feel slightly uncomfortable and just put it to the side and gradually by increasing those avoidance tactics, we've also avoided what's good for us. You know, it's like taking an antibiotic. It wipes out everything, the good ones and the bad ones. So when we've been doing something that we felt good for us, we've actually also been taking away the massive benefits of nature connection, getting your hands dirty in soil, um, you know, being out and, and feeling the salt air coming into your face and getting soaked, all these things. And doing that, by yourself, just like I was saying when I was young, wandering off my own, but actually doing it with others, being out there with others is huge. And we do a lot of work where we, we actually very much take food and drink with us as well. And to be outdoors, to put a little fire on, fire's a huge thing, immediate, primal, boom, brings you right into the group, brings you, pulls you together, the fire almost pulls you together. Um, the safety, warmth, you can cook with, all these things. And then we eat and drink together outdoors. And we work with groups, you know, with um, some of our programs are where people are referred to us through, um, you know, they perhaps have chronic mental uh, poor poor health and they are referred in to us from mental health services. But some other stuff is just for all of us. I mean, this is for everybody. We all have mental health. Um, we all have the need to be physically and socially connected. Over the years, Stephen has had some pretty special moments on his walks. One of the, yeah, just one of those times. In fact, I, I had a tear come right into my eye for this because there was a chap who was with us uh, who had never ever spoken. Um, uh, yeah, neurodiverse, uh, um, ear defenders, very did loved being with us, but never said anything, and and had a bit of echolalia and would would repeat things to himself, but but. I just assumed vocabulary wasn't there. And this, to me, it was a real eye-opener of, of thinking about how you judge people, in a sense. And we had a game going on where the group was to look for things hanging up in the trees, and he found the card first and brought it. And I was fully expecting him to pass the card to, to somebody else to read. 
And he took the card down and just read the whole thing absolutely perfectly. And the tear, you know, it was really, it was one of those moments where my heart hurt <laughs> in my chest. Um, but so such wonderful things. And I think that situation where he felt so safe and so secure with the group that had been there for a while, that, that kind of opened out. So that's, that's an example, two examples, one of wildlife coming to us and one of, one of him, one of somebody in the group just opening out and feeling safe within us and, and reminding me in particular that uh, you can just never judge things the way you see them on the outside. Given all this talk of being outside in nature, it seemed only fitting that our final interview of the project took place outside. We'll have a wander over here and you you can meet some of our our secret weapons. Oh, yes, please. Um... So what we've kind of discovered is it's very difficult to be unhappy around goats. Um, so we have five pygmy goats uh, who uh, they're, 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 they're interesting creatures. They're, they're really quite intelligent. They don't particularly put their intelligence to good use most of the time. So most of the time it's how to escape, how to get stuck in things, how to get where they're not supposed to be. Hugh, along with his partner Sarah, runs the Darrick Social Croft just north of Strontian. Alongside keeping traditional crofting or farming practices alive, conserving local animal breeds and championing regenerative farming, Hugh and Sarah have a bigger vision. They both have backgrounds in social care, and have fused this with crofting to provide social support, mental health and educational care services for their local community, which is where the goats come in. One of our activities is we do goat walking, which took us about a year to get the, the licence to do. Uh, but but we, we can take, we, we have a licence that allows us to take people and goats for walks into the Ariundel and, and up the hill and things. Um, and so people come and visit and uh, you know, some people will just sit with the goats, uh, others will come for you know, more frequent sessions and we'll do things like trimming the, the, the goats feet and uh, looking after them and things. Uh, yeah, so the, this, this is our goat field. How goats have evolved, I really don't know, because they don't like mud and they don't like the rain. So they have a, a shed that, that they will beat a hasty retreat into yep, when it rains. Whereas the sheep are all right. Um, the, the two black sheep here are two of this year's lambs that we've got. And we kind of rotate the lambs and the other stock around to keep the white sheep company because we we tend to take on waifs and strays and the white sheep has been blind since birth so he can't actually see anything um so he he tends to just follow you around listening for your voice um and he knows the little field well enough that he can run around quite happily but if we let him into this field uh he has a habit of falling off the off the rocks and things. So, why does Hugh see the natural world as quite so conducive to mental well-being? Uh, it's a variety of things. You know, being outside is tends to be good for us. Uh, you know, being out in the fresh air is good for us. Engaging in 
physical activity that's within our uh, our capacity tends to be to be good for it. So whether it's you know going for a walk whilst we count the sheep or uh, you know fencing, putting up fencing, mending things. Uh, so just yeah, you know, the activities can be beneficial. The there's there's a not a, a, a long history really of care farming in the UK. There's a, a longer history in parts of continental Europe. But one of the things that's been found is that it does work quite well with, uh, in, in sort of attracting and engaging men with mental health issues, uh, who, who are notoriously difficult really to encourage to engage with support. And, and most crofts, uh, most Care farms and social crofts run kind of what we refer to as a leave your diagnosis at the gate approach. So we don't ask people, you know, particularly what they're experiencing. We don't make people talk. Uh, it's not a, it, it, it offers a, an environment in which people can chat about what's going on if they're comfortable with it, but they don't have to. What you do often find is people are much more likely to talk if the focus isn't on each other. So if you're, you know, having a one-to-one -one counselling session with somebody and, and and you're looking at each other, which isn't what we do, um, some people find this really uncomfortable and off-putting. Whereas if we're both grooming Murphy, picking out his feet, something like that, it, it, it people feel a lot less on the spot. Uh, so that often works well. Um, we have people who come frequently who have learning disabilities and autism and things and in their lives will have predominantly been the cared for person all their lives. So to come regularly and to look after the sheep, to look after the goats, to look after uh, the horse, they're, they're then becoming the the the, the sort of the support safe person, the, the person providing welfare to another sentient being, as it were. So you know, that that has uh, effects, uh, and that, you know there can be a, you know, social aspects to it. There can be a you know, teamwork aspect to it. So it 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 it's it, it it's an approach, just a different approach to to mainstream approaches, and probably much more what life would have been like here 200 years ago you know you, you probably have school would probably have been either a long walk that you'd go go on and you'd learn you know to, to read and write basically and then when you're old enough to to work the land you'd, you'd work the land so As a passing traveller through the Highlands and Islands, it's not my place to try and define their spirit. I am more than happy to leave that to those who live, work, laugh and love here. There was something about Hugh and Sarah and the work they're doing at Durrock, though, that kind of comes close to encapsulating what's become my understanding of that spirit. Here are two people who were objectively outsiders to the Highlands and Islands, choosing to come and make their home here. They've been welcomed in by the local community, given the help they needed to get set up and settled into the rhythm of the passing seasons. Far from resting on their laurels, though, they've also recognised the innate uniqueness of the place, its beauty, its community, its history and its traditions. 
Then they turn the skills they brought with them to something that seems to have enhanced all of those things. The work they're doing at the Croft is helping both them and those around them, not just to survive, but to thrive. Until next time, thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Spirit of the Highlands and Islands, a partnership project between the Highland Council and High Life Highland, which is delivered in collaboration with Visit Scotland. The Spirit of the Highlands and Islands project is supported by a grant from the Natural and Cultural Heritage Fund, led by Nature Scott and funded by the European Regional Development Fund. For more information and to hear more stories from the people we spoke with, visit discoverhighlandsandislands.scot. The podcast was produced by Smartify, written by Peter Knowles, with sound design by Renato Camillo.